on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Ahoy there, welcome aboard to another episode of The Big Fish and arguably Australia's best beach fisherman joins you next to share some hard-earned knowledge. It's the big fish, and Alex Bellissimo, rock and beach and estuary land-based guide, is a man on the move. He's a very big advocate for being a fast fisherman, I guess, for getting a bit of exercise when you're beach fishing. But so many of us love beach fishing because you just camp in the one spot, you put the rods in the holder, you lie down and forget about it. But not for Alex. Here's a little tip from one of his recent videos on a big, big beach where you're allowed to drive about moving. Well, no fish in this hole, so let's go and find some other holes and uh, they may produce fish. You know, I mean, you can keep punching at it if you like, but if it's not producing, just keep moving around. You know, you've got to have a reason. So there's the occasional fish and that might give you reason to stay around. Perhaps when the tide comes up, they may accelerate, they might come on more and more, but if you're not getting any bites whatsoever, you're really risking it. So that's the reason why we're moving. And uh, Alex Bellissimo, good morning. Welcome back to The Big Fish. Good morning, mate. How are you? Good. If Bellissimo's not getting a bite, you know they're not there, I I reckon. But I guess a lot of us aren't as confident in our fishing ability and don't realise that if we fished a a gutter or a hole on, on the sand well that we should have encountered a fish pretty quickly. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say that, mate. The thing is, right, like, and, and, and due respects to the angler, it doesn't feel that confident about not moving because he feels like that if he does move, he or she does move, that they may end up missing out on fish, especially if they got fish there the previous day. Conditions might have changed, right? So it's not that the gutter has disappeared. The conditions may have changed and therefore the fish may not be in that gutter. And, you get uh, migratory species, especially on those big beaches like brim, brim and whiting, and they may not be in um, in large volume in that particular hole. They might have moved from that hole that you fished, which previously m- might have produced, but now you need to go to another hole which produces better. It can also be the stages of the tide as well. So the tide might be um, a larger tide or it might be more fuller or it might be a low tide that you're fishing. You know, so... Being on the move, the key thing is being on the move, if you're not getting bites, can produce a lot more fish than just sitting there, basically, and just hoping for the best. Just, you know, what's the old Aussie, Aussie saying? Um, you know, just winging it, basically. You know, so. A lot of people, though, enjoy that. They'll stay and hopefully wait for a school of fish to come into the gutter, and, and that's fine as well. That's fine as well. But uh, if, oh, you're, if you're fair dinkum, you've got to be on the move, and it may only be to the other end of the gutter. I've, I've seen instances on some of our well-fished urban beaches where someone is, is 20 metres down the beach not getting a touch and at the end of the gutter where that spot is that you taught us about where the sand is being eroded and exposing the food, 
that person is going bang, 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 bang. They're on the, the face of the gutter and they're pulling in the whiting or the brim one after the other. Well, that's exactly right, mate. So you've got a very strong... Okay, let's assume that the current's going from left to right and you've got a very strong sweep going from left to right. On the right-hand side of the gutter, where a lot of the water is actually emptying out, they might be emptying out along that rip going out the sea and therefore the fish are sitting in the rip because sitting on the opposite side of the gutter, the, cu- the current might be too strong for the fish right, to really sit properly. And animals, right, they like to save energy. Right? Whether you're a predator or whether you're uh, a grazer, you want to save energy. You don't want to expel all your energy because otherwise the calories that you burn, you're going to expel more than what you're eating. So you're better off going to this place which is going to be uh, using up less calories where the food's going to come to you rather than you having to fight the current constantly and waiting for the food to come off that sandbank, you're actually waiting for the food to be um, deposited in that rip and then you actually go and um, have a feed in that rip. And therefore, fishing in that rip produces more fish. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? That rip is doing the work for the fish, isn't it? When we do the pippy twist, we're using energy to extract the pippies and, of course, worms get displaced as well, squirt worms and things, but the fish are letting that current do it for them but how do you where would you target that uh, is not going to mean your bait's going to go ripping out as well well so that can vary right you know the direction of where the uh, rip's going um, what stage of the tide the rip's actually um, being being formed um, in some cases the current just goes it sweeps from one side of the gutter to the other over the sandbank into another gutter and you just got a very powerful current going from right to left or left to right for many gutters. So therefore, you may not have any rip, right? So you need to go, keep going and keep trying to find that spot that has been, that's got a, a spot where, where it's not pushing your bait into the, into the actual beach. And therefore, you're probably using a lighter sinker. And if by using a lighter sinker, you're getting better results as well. We're speaking with Alex Bellissimo, uh, a man on the move when it comes to beach fishing. And in that particular video, the first spot, you really didn't do very well at all. You decided to move at the next gutter, or maybe it was the next one after that, one after the other, big silvery surf brim with broad shoulders and really bright, lean oh. lean fish, those typical fish on the move uh, in, in wintertime, you know, just gorgeous-looking brim and big Absolutely. ones too, one after the other. You and your buddy. Was that up the north coast or the south coast? Don't give too much it was away. Mid north coast, right? So, I, look, I'll, I'll let you know. It was, it was it was up around Crescent Head, right? But any of those beaches up around uh, Port Macquarie, Crescent, I mean, any any of those big beaches produce. In fact, yeah. the beaches around my area produce good brim fishing. See, the fishing typically is, is is always a bit harder in Sydney, but we do have good runs of fish, right? If you if you really know what you're doing. And, uh, and you're quick to respond to what's actually happening. But up the mid-north coast, um, you know, you get bigger volumes of fish. There's bigger beaches, there's more gutters, and there's just more area, there's more worms, there's more pippies. Weren't they just uh, peas in a pod too? They were all good fish, well over 30 centimetres, all so shiny and, and bright, and, you know, they're so clean oh, clean out of the surf, and they fight they hard. They fight hard. They're great on the plate. They're just so good. You, know, you, you land one and you just admire the fish. It just looks so clean and, and you know, it's such a pretty looking fish. And it, it's just a wonderful 
Mate, I, I love surf swimming. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's great. I love whiting fishing. I love all forms of fishing. Mm. Speaking with Alex Bellissimo, who's got a great series of videos if you want to see how to do it. And, of course, you can also take you for a fish as well. But uh, the latest one, uh, Beach Brim Fishing up on the mid-north coast on finding the fish, different baits, and, and uh, using your eyes to uh, see where they are and, and using different leads. You're very quick at changing leads too. You want that bait to be not absolutely rooted to the spot, but to, to be moving at the right speed to, to attract the fish. What about uh, recently, Alex? You've been chasing the Ludric uh, over the last uh, week or so, and you, you've had some great success, and then all of a sudden they, they turned off. You can't pick it, can you? <laughs> Oh, the reason being, right, because they're fully in spawn. So when you get a fish that's just partly in spawn, they're still, um, they're not really on the move. So what happens when they're fully in spawn, and when you're getting a fish that's actually, you know, releasing a lot of their spawn or melt when you catch them, right, especially, um, you know, so, so, what, so what they're doing, they're releasing it. They're just about to spawn, right? Now, at that stage, they can actually switch off quite quickly. The reason being is because they're just fully in spawn and they're just about to release all their eggs. The, the melt and the eggs are just about to be all released. Therefore, they can go off the bite. That's right. It's like when you're on your honeymoon night. You know, if someone knocks on the on the honeymoon suite door and said, I've got a, a steak dinner for you, you'll say, well, I, I might uh, give a pass on that. I've got other things to do. Oh, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get too graphic, but you know what I'm talking about. And and Alex, um, the, these fish are just stonkers too, aren't they? These are the, the, the big fish. There are just so many ludric around your part of the world. Um, we're talking about fish over 40 centimetres, you were saying. Oh, look, there was... Um, so on one rock fishing trip, which is fishing the ocean rocks, um, you know, where there's waves and so forth, they were up to 43 centimetres. And then in the estuary in uh, Middle Harbour, uh, we got Ludric up to 41 centimetres. So they were pretty close, right? So there was a nice bag with a client that we got nine fish, and that was uh, in Middle Harbour. And then um, down off the ocean rocks down at Manly, we actually got uh, seven fish. You know, so, weed, um, or weed or uh, cabbage? Oh, okay. So even the estuary fish responded better, which is funny. In Middle Harbour, they actually responded better on the cabbage weed than what they did on the hair weed. Now, partly due, that could be because of the quality of the hair weed. The hair weed wasn't quite as good as the cabbage weed. It was still good quality weed, but that might have been part of the reason. But coincidentally, they didn't, on both outings, coincidentally, the uh, cabbage weed seemed to work the best. Look, look if, you get, if you're going to harvest weed, make sure it's obviously in the legal area. Um, but but also make sure that it's got that nice deep green about it. Uh, it, it, it doesn't fall apart too easy. Right? It's quite firm. Um, try and avoid getting that weed that's too tough looking. You go, in some ponds you go, geez, that's a terrific looking weed. That'll never come off a hook. Don't use that weed. Because right? that weed's just really coarse and rough and tough and the fish don't like it. There's not much nutrients in, in it, even though it, looks, even though it looks very, very nice. Use that hair weed. This is regarding hair weed, by the way. Use that hair weed that you can pull apart with a bit of pressure, but one that's actually going to, um, it still feels soft and silky in your hands, right? And make sure it's at least two and a half centimetres or three centimetres long at least or more. Now, with the cabbage weed, 
preferably that cabbage weed's around three centimetres plus in length. And um, make sure it's that deep green rather than that light green. If it's that light green, you find that it's probably been exposed to the sun for too 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 much time at low tide around the low tide period, or it's been in a warm pond, right? So it's actually struggling to survive. And that also applies with the hairweed as well. So try and gather the hairweed that's that deep green and that cabbage weed that. That's also that deep green as well. Did you have both in your your burley and your sand? I do actually, yeah. So so I I I get the scissors out and and I chop I chop up the cabbage as fine as I possibly can, and then I'll rub it in the sand. Um, the hair weed's a little bit easier to rub into the sand. I'll chop that up as fine as I can, and then I'll rub it in the sand. And then you'll find that it blends. It nearly turns the the the, the beach sand. Um, a slight shade of green, oh. so you don't. You're not necessarily feeding the ludric. You're feeding them on specks, so you're basically teasing them. They're, yeah. they're only grabbing specks. They're just getting a smell of it, almost, aren't they? Just getting a, a little taste of it. We're speaking with Alex Bellissimo, rock and beach fishing, uh, an estuary guide, land-based guide. We'll come back with Alex in just a moment and, and have a look at the prospects because with all of the rain. The whiting fishing's been quite good on the beaches, but not so great in the estuaries, and I'd really love to pick his brains about uh, how the whiting fishing is going to go because really the whiting, for me, are uh, the, the, the king of all fish to catch off the beach, uh, although the, the mulloway <laughs> tops them all. But, uh, Nothing we'll... wrong with the whiting, mate. I, I love my whiting. <laughs> I reckon they're the best. Uh, we'll come back yeah. with Alex Bellissimo after a little bit of this. Everyone knows if you want whiting, you've got to have worms. It's the big fish. Fishing worms, fishing worms, everybody's wishing they had fishing worms. Find them in the garden, turn over a rock, slip them in your sandwich, put them in your sock. That's fishing worms, fishing worms. Well, my big sister, she don't care for my fishing worms. Big ones, little ones, they scare her to death. Make a chocolate shake I dropped a couple in the blender And now she's looking at me With bated breath After I'm eating fish and worms Fish and worms Everybody's wishing they had fish and worms Do your English homework Underline a word Circle direct object And transitive verb With a fish and worm Fish and worm Wrap them around a corkscrew, twist them around some twine, take them to the hell spot so they can unwind. That's fish and worm, fish and worm. Everybody's wishing they had fish and worms. Find them on the sidewalk, crispy as a chip. When your aunt comes over, chop them in the dip for some fish and worms. Fish and worms. Find them in the backyard, underneath some leaves. Make them little dresses, just leave off the sleeves. That's fish and worms. Fish and worms. Well, I like everything you can 
think about fishing worms. Lushy, gushy, gushy ones, ones that wiggle and squish. There's only one thing I don't like doing with fishing worms. That is, of course, I hate to catch fish. I hate fish, just fishing worms. Fishing worms. Everybody's wishing they had fishing worms. Fishing worms, fishing worms. <laughs> uh, that's Haywood uh, Banks and fishing and worms, and everyone knows worms and whiting go hand in hand. And uh, every now and then, when you're fishing for the whiting with a six pound line, you also end up with a 20 pound mulloway uh, taking your beach worm as well. Alex Bellissimo. Uh, loves his worms for for whiting and Alex uh, let's speculate about the upcoming whiting season we know they're a a good summer fish when the water warms up I've had a terrible time in my local estuary trying to catch them over the last few wet years you can't get through the big brim the brim is uh, season has been phenomenal and I think the rain has brought all of those big brim out of the snags up in the creeks and, and the back end of the estuary and it's been just amazing the size and numbers of the brim that, that I've been catching, but uh, sadly, my whiting, um, I think they've all gone out onto the beaches where you fish, mate. Uh, what's what's your theory about it, and what could be the upcoming season? Well, so I had I had a, a pretty good whiting outing. Um, I had a client, he got eight, eight whiting and um, a brim and a couple of big darts. Unusually, the big darts have been around already. Normally those large darts that are around 35 centimetres, now I know it's not so big, but the 35, 38 centimetre dart that you get in Sydney are usually in the height of summer um, on, on selected beaches, but we got some big dart as well. Oh, they go hard too, don't they? They're a great little eating fish too. Mate, they're a great little eating fish. that I, I actually quite like them for sashimi as well. A lot of people don't eat sashimi, but I, I eat sashimi style. When you get them up around 33 centimetres up, 35 centimetres up, you do get enough meat on it. They're still skinny, but but you still you do get enough meat. Those dart are like mini permit, aren't they? On the light whiting gear, and they go like crazy. Oh, mate, love them, especially when you get a double header. You get oh. a double header, and, and and you get two quite big uh, um, dart. They're, I mean, they're fantastic, man. They're great fun. Yeah, I think they're underrated. I really do. I think they're a terrific little little oh. surf surf fish. So was that you recent? Know, recently, you got onto them. Um, yes, very recent. Right, just um, when we had that very, very hot weather. So, well, not very recent, but quite recent, about a week and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. Then we had the hot uh, weather again on on Thursday. So, and and you got some good whiting. Eight, eight, nice whiting, eh? Uh, yeah, yeah. Eight, nice whiting, a brim, and some big dart as well. Um, but they've been quite sparse. So, what's happened in recent times? Most of the beaches have got that red weed on there. So there's that small red weed because uh, you get die-offs right from 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 the rocks. Now now that could be kelp. So a lot of a lot of anglers think that the die-off could be caused because of the rough sea, which is often the case, right? Most often the case. But sometimes the die-off is a natural die-off where the weed bed itself dies off, and the old kelp or the old red weed or the old um, that that brown sort of weed. Right, um, which looks like a small sort of tree sort of branch. Uh, it's a bit it's usually about sort of forty or between twenty and thirty, forty centimetres. Yeah, I long. know the stuff, and it always sticks to your line too, doesn't it? Well, it sticks to your line because there's a lot of branches that come off it, so that you can cling to your line quite easily. 
Now, there's most of the beaches have actually got that on the northern beaches currently at the moment. That's obviously going to clear up. There's also some of that oceanic weed with the bubbles on it. It's got little bubbles. Yeah, like on little it. grapes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like little grapes. Exactly right. And and there's um, there's big clumps of that. And it's very it's a very very tough weed as well. So there's a combination of all those weeds. There's uh, there's a little bit of ribbon weed as well, right? And this is caused in just die-offs, um, natural die-offs. Okay. Now when that clears up, I think there'll be a few whiting anglers out there that if they're keen, they will catch a few whiting. The, the whiting season in Sydney usually um, accelerates around sort of the first week of November onwards. It's still a little bit a little bit early. I I went out and had an investigate before I took my client out because um, that was on a client trip by the way, and I caught a couple of whiting. I went, okay, I'm just going to stop there and not catch any more. I know the whiting are there, and then I took my client there, and he got seven whiting. You know, so and I tell you what, we stopped fishing. My client said, look, Al, we've got a great bag of fish. Let's just pull the pin because it's just too freaking hot to, um, to fish. <laughs> which was which was quite unusual. Yeah, that's a good feed. So, that's so a hot. really that's a really really good feed of fish, and they're usually a better size off the a good size off the beach. Usually too, you don't get too many small ones, do you? It, it's quite common to get your 40, 41, 42, even up to forty five centimeter fish, and you can get a bag of fish, and often you'll have half a dozen fish that can be between forty and 43, 44 centimeters. Cracking bag of fish. They're great fish, aren't they? And do you think they'll go back up into the estuaries because they've been a bit quiet in the estuaries? Do you think that the, because we're going into a drier summer that that might mean they'll move further back up into the, the estuaries because the beach fishing's obviously been pretty good for them? Well, you can end up with unnatural circumstances where the council will shut the estuary to you know to get rid of the um, sand in there, to build up the sand, right? And therefore, they won't open up the estuary. Or... The council will open up the estuary to 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 produce the runoff. Unfortunately, when the council produces the runoff, like, like opens up the estuary, it might clog back up again. So the best way for it to happen is really during a rain, a rain runoff. Now, because as you mentioned, we are having dry, you know, the first dry year, right, is coming up. Um, they may not be able to uh, migrate up the estuary. Which is say like Narrabeen Lagoon, for example. Yeah, yeah, uh, great. The, all so, of those coastal lagoons, right up and down the, the east coast of New South Wales, are, are just great whiting habitat, aren't they? Full of nippers, great, full of full of great, squirt worms. Great yeah. whiting habitat. But the thing is, that then you got the larger rivers like um, Sydney Harbour, um, George's River, which is Botany Bay. Uh, I mean, this is obviously in my area, and then the, uh, you know, then the mighty Hawkesbury, right? And they don't shut up. Right, so so the fish can still come come and go, right, at will. So even though it's a dry year, they can still migrate onto the beaches, and then therefore you'll you'll end up with still good numbers of whiting on the beach, regardless. So the only downside is that you you may have some estuaries that because they're not opened, right, um, you won't end up with the migration of the whiting going up into the estuary. But see, that can also be a good thing too because. What they're doing, they're waiting outside the estuary to try and travel up the estuary, which means that they they um, they actually get quite big in volume, 
because the estuary is shut. Ah, so, so around Narrab- around the entrance to Narrabeen Lagoon, for example, could be a, a hot spot. You're giving a bit away there. Hey, we've got to leave it there, Alex Bellissimo. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. Honestly, I've learned so much from, from putting into practice some of your techniques and ideas, and it's hard-won knowledge, too. You've worked it out by digging it out of the sand. Tight lines, buddy. I know you've got to get out and, and hit the water, oh. so I'll let you go. No, I appreciate it. There's also a lot that I don't know, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you go out. You can keep learning. You can keep learning. 100% right, mate. Look, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Always great. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Cheers. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find him? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. Hey, g'day, Scott. I believe nature turned it on for you the other day. Oh, gee, last Wednesday. Last Wednesday, I took a trip, a history trip to Broughton Island on a beautiful day. And you hope on these trips that nature does turn it on, that you see everything that is to be seen. And that's exactly what happened. Take us through it, Stinker, because it's never a dull moment when you're at sea. (laughs) Well, that's true. Well, of course, it was a large, rather large boat, and we were all on there, and people from all over the place. I know there was a crew come from the Blue Mountains and some from further up the coast, and it's wonderful to sit and talk to all these people because I enjoy doing that. I enjoy doing knowing where they come from and the reason they've come to Port Stephens. Anyway, we jumped on the boat, and off we go, and as we go through the port... Um, we go on the north side of the harbour, underneath the shadows of Yakabar Headland, which is a beautiful, beautiful um, geological structure, is what it is. It's oh, the, the vegetation and the rock shapes, and of course, it's surrounded by lobster traps at this time of the year. Although it has been a very poor lobster season in Port Stephens, and the last three years. Um, seasons, lobster seasons here have been fantastic, but this one's been a bit slow, but then that's what happens. Anyway, leaving Yakabar, we motored pretty much straight across the Cabbage Tree Island, which is a fascinating island. It's only probably oh, 800 metres long, I suppose, and 200 metres wide. It's not, it's not a very big island, but it's got this unique vegetation but particularly on the western face, has um, the cabbage trees. And it's in amongst the cabbage trees that a tiny bird, the ghoul's petrel, nests on the western face in the sun. It's quite beautiful there and protected, very protected. But that particular bird was under a fair degree of pressure 
because someone had released rabbits on that little island who had chewed, the rabbits had chewed the undergrowth, and these birds, the, the girls' petrel, they nest on the ground. And so when the rabbits chewed away the undergrowth, the, the eggs were exposed to currawongs and crows um, who were... Uh, really brought that little bird close to extinction. But some great work by National Parks and Wildlife, particularly Nicholas Carlyle, saved that little bird. And now nests are, um, are now on Bundlebar Island and nests are on Broughton Island. So if any tragedy happens on Cabbage Tree, we have reserves, if you wish. So after we left Cabbage Tree, oh... On the northern face of Cabbage Tree Island, in the sun, basking out the seals, they just lay <laughs> there, and then they slide into the water and swim around. They're, they're so capable in the water. They're built for it. And they go in right close where the white water is crashing and bashing, and you'd think that nothing could survive in there. And then a, he- a seal pops his head up. Do you have any down your way? Yeah, we do. Um, just across on uh, Baron Joey, there's a, a bachelor colony of them. It's it's quite interesting because you, you go the ferry from Brisbane Water from Edelong and, and uh, Wagstaff and across, if you keep your eyes open, you, you see them. But that's the thing about fisher people too, isn't it, Stinker? We're always scanning the water. Yeah, that's so true. And it, it um, also works with bushmen. For those that are in the bush, they'll see things that people from the coast do not see, like snakes in trees and birds' nests, little things that are so common to them that you just don't know what to, what to see, to, to look for if you're from the coast. And the same goes from those that come from the bush. When they come to the coast, a whale can jump and they'll miss it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You've just got to know where to look, haven't you? Of course, you've got to know what to look for. But then, of course, the whales are all coming south and they've got little ones with them. So it sidled right up to the boat uh, and rolled over on its tummy as if it was showing off. So everyone got a big thrill about that. But then the birds started to work over the surface and there was a huge school of salmon. And they've been heading up the coast for the last month. Uh, and then they're gorging themselves on these small pilchards. So there's so much action on the surface. And as we ne- uh, near um, Broughton, which is about, uh, it's about 14 kilometres, eight nautical miles from the head. And we reached Broughton, which is three, nau- uh, three kilometres long and two kilometres wide, but it has these beautiful beaches on it. And so we all uh, um, unloaded onto the beach and then walked around the island. And, you know, the most common question asked, (laughs) you tell them about the birds and the fish and and how beautiful the whales were. It's like, are there any snakes here, stinker? (laughs) 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 And, of course, it was just polka dot with mutton birds, the mutton birds holes over there, like rabbits. They're very, very similar to rabbit holes. It's a fantastic excursion. And the answer to that question, of course, is yes, there are snakes, but they're little marsh snakes, and they're not much bigger than a pencil, really, like a green pencil. But there's so much more out there. There's the green and gold bell frog, 
there's um there's dolphins all around the island and sea eagles are thriving there on the island. So we had a bit of a swim and a snorkel and jumped on the boat and come home. What an experience. It was just fantastic. And the stories that are prompted by the landscape and the, the huts there at Esmeralda, I mean, you've got a million of them, haven't you? Do people enjoy those? Oh, yes, particularly the one of the spy. Uh, you know, there's a spy out there in 1953 when you might um, recall the the, uh, the Russians in Canberra were trying to get out of Canberra, but um, they wanted to stay in Australia, the Petrov Affair. The spy out there, if you look up K-L-O-D, you'll find out that a spy actually left Canberra during that period and come and lived on Broughton Island and took up a um, a commercial fishing licence. And really, uh, he fished quite often there but never caught any fish. And the suggestion was that he was meeting a, a submarine on the horizon. But no one ever knew anything about that. His name was Wally Clayton. And his, his wife's name was, given name, was Peaceful Clayton because she was born uh, when World War I um, peace was declared at the end of World War I. So that's just one of the stories. So K-L-O-D, Claude, was his, his code name for the that's Russians. Right. That's correct. Did anyone have any evidence that he was rendezvousing with um, Soviet submarines no. after dark no. off, off the island? No. It was just... It, Australians have been what they are. They, they heard all these stories and they referred to him as Molotov. They called him Molotov. And they said, oh, you're going out to sea again. There must be submarine. Oh, you know. They make up all these stories. So did the fishermen I mean, there, the, the, the fed income fishermen, know that he was a Soviet spy? Well, they knew he had something to do with it, but they were never concerned about it. They thought it was a bit entertaining, really. And <laughs> to get a photo of him was a very difficult thing to do because he was always hiding behind something. You can you can look at those documents now. What, what what's been discovered about him? Oh, not a great deal because Australia never really had any great secrets. There's <laughs> <laughs> only there's only a lot of work for you if you're a spy if you've got a lot of secrets. But Australia never really had too many. I still uh, don't think they do. Uh, but, uh, I don't know what he's going to work out on on Broughton Island. You know what what he's going to learn there that the Soviets would want to know about. I, I guess if they were paying him to to live in paradise, he probably had a good time. The re- he wasn't there to do any research. He, he was there to get away from the heat in Canberra. I mean, he was he was just escaping. So the, they were searching. They were searching for all these people who were involved with this uh, involvement with with the Petrov affair. It's just such a fascinating story, Stinker, about uh, this incredible Cold War drama that played out on that little island that you're on on Wednesday, according to Angus Chapel in his book Australia's Cold War. Clayton was believed to be the Soviet spy master, codenamed Claude, as you said, who coordinated a network of spies in Canberra during the 1940s and early 50s. And according to decrypted uh, United States counterintelligence, Claude received classified and um, not so classified documents and information from a network of about 10 spies and passed it on to the Soviet handlers. And he was the kingpin. He was the spy master pulling the strings, if you like, according to Tim Connell, um, in the Newcastle Herald, 
he said uh, that ASIO was convinced that Clayton was the mastermind. Fearing Clayton was about to defect to the Soviet Union, the Menzies government arranged for the cancellation of his and his wife's passport. And according to Clayton's wife, Peace Joy Clayton, the two had uh, plans to migrate permanently to the USSR in April 1957. Clayton was kept under surveillance throughout the 50s, 60s as part of Operation Pigeon. This surveillance may have even extended to the 70s and 80s, uh, suspecting that Clayton might rendezvous with a Soviet submarine off the, the coast. ASIO had reportedly even recruited the services of local fishermen in the Port Stephens area to monitor his movements at sea. That's it. Just that's one man in one hut. But there's seven huts, and of course now there's a there's a, um, a national parks and wildlife hut, and, and it's just a fascinating place. And I suppose the king of the island, who was long since gone, he died in the 1970s, was Demetrius George's Cara George, who was a, a Greek fisherman and lobster man, and he lived on the island for 49 years. So there's another story, and I. And I actually wrote a book about him, a kid's book, called Kerosene Tin Jim. And that's what the the islanders called him. So the islanders always had nicknames. And, of course, let's not forget Clarabelle, <laughs> the, the cow that ended up on Broughton Island in the, in the um, 1955 floods, the Maitland floods. So there is, you know, and the people sit in the sun, and then I'll tell them these stories, and they're fascinated. They love the stories and... But the scenery, oh, gee, the scenery is just magnificent. Particularly, there's two two spots that the scenery really um, takes your breath away. And that's on the western face where you're looking at a, uh, over Coalshaft Bay back to uh, the beach and the Mile Lake system and then back to, um, to the um, Hawks Nest area and then Tomaree and Yakabar from a distance are quite beautiful. On the northern beaches, then you're looking towards Seal Rocks. And he, and that is just extraordinary as well. It's a great view there, isn't it? And remember that time we were up on the, the top of, of the cliff there and the, and the giant storm was rolling in and it got old mullet gut Vic. He's got his brain ticking over to write a poem. It so inspired him, he wrote a, a poem about it called Storm Over Broughton. I, I think we might go out on that because that really sums up the colours and the, the drama of that sky in words. Oh, have you got a copy of that? I've got it right here, ready to go. Oh, well, send it to me when you get a chance. <laughs> I'll play it for our listeners first. Oh, that'd be great. Good on you, Stinker. Tight lines, mate. Hooray, Scott. The storm. We could see it coming from the southwest, a raging storm, one of nature's best. Purple clouds being split asunder by lightning flashes, then rolling thunder. The sky and the sea were joined as one as the squall moved quickly to engulf the sun. We sheltered in our Esmeralda hut with the pelting rain keeping windows shut. For a solid hour we watched the show in awe of the power that violent blow. And then it ended as it started. The gale just vanished and the clouds parted. The air was fresh and the seas were calm, as if nature was telling us she meant no harm. We climbed to Broughton's coal shaft bay to take a last look at the dying day. 
As the fiery orb slowly sank to die, wispy clouds became etched by a scarlet sky. The horizon was lit in every shade of red. The distant hills of Yakabar took on the hue of lead. It felt like we were in a primeval place, a million miles from the modern rat race. Our cares had gone with that violent storm. Now peace and tranquility were the norm. To the left we saw our mate's fishing boat, close to Cod Rock and well afloat. To the right, bait fish broke the top of the sea, expanding that wondrous panorama for me. I will never forget that incredible sky. We all must come to this place before we die. On ABC Radio, it's The Big Fish with Scott Levi. friend the sun it had just risen and Henry Lawson and I went fishing the gum tree fell by flood and flow she gives a glancing blow That silence said we fell upon That morning at that billabong A city far away I wasn't missing Henry Lawson and I Went fishing something that you learn about while you're busy living that's what I that's what I thought about when Henry Lawson and I went fishing Life is something 
that you learn about while you're busy living. It's what I, it's what I thought about. And talking about fishing in the outback, we're going to take you now to a fishing shop with a difference at Charleville. Judy Aitken is a well-known proprietor who's also well-known for a colourful language and for her eclectic outback store selling fishing gear, so things to allure and attract the fish, and sex toys. She's known as Rude Jude, and she's one of the great fishing shop proprietors who's just about to hang the gone fishing sign on the door. We've had a really good tourist season, but of course, now that the heat's coming along, um, a lot of, you know, they've sort of stopped as many that were coming before, but there's still school holidays, so there's still quite a few coming through. You've become a bit of a, a celebrity, a bit of a cult figure in the Queensland Outback Road, Jude. Everywhere I look, I see your name popping up these days, and most recently... I did a double take because I read that Rude Jude was uh, front and centre at the Logie Awards and I'd love to find (laughs) out how you ended up there. Fancy an old 74-year-old mad woman from the West, wild woolly West, going to the bloody Logies. No one can understand it, certainly not me. Your home, your heart, your soul is, of course, in the beautiful outback and I want to ask you about Judy's Browse Inn. Uh, 40 years running that. What what are, what are the highlights? Uh, 41 years. <laughs> 41 years. There you go. Yeah. Oh, you know, we've had ups and downs and everything, but I've enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, I'm going to miss it terribly. Uh, and mainly the people, the locals, the tourists. Will and Woody have, and uh, Back Roads have actually put uh, Charleville on the map. Yeah. Um, people just come in. Hell West and Crooked, you know, we'd probably get 20 people in there a day more in the tourist season. And they just say, you're a rude Jude. We've seen you. I said, no, you haven't. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Take me back to your very first media appearance. Was it a radio appearance, a paper interview, whatever it was? How did you feel? How did it come about? Well, it was back roads. They were the first ones to put me on the map, do a back roads story. We did a big camp oven dinner for them over at the fishing club and <laughs> it was so funny. You know, it was really great and that's how Will and Woody got onto me through back roads. So 41 years uh, running Judy's Browse in, but also, as you've alluded to, the, the founder of the Charleville Fishing and Restocking Club. You would have helped a lot of people find the fish over the years, find out where they're biting. What are the questions you get asked most often by people visiting Charleville and looking to get out and catch some fish? No, well, we do mud maps for the tourists and that. You know, I just do mud maps. We have got other maps and that. People ring me up from, you know, New South Wales. We're coming through Charleville. 
uh, where do we go and fish and all this sort of stuff and what have you got for bait, you know, and the river. The river is just fantastic. The Warrigo River here, it's just so beautiful. I was born here and um, I'll die here and I've got my plot booked out at the cemetery, so I'm definitely staying here, Dale. You're not going anywhere. You hand over the keys next week. Judy's browsing, so 41 years. Yeah. Uh, incredible journey. What is what is next? I want to go to the Territory. I'd like to go up the Territory. Yeah, my mother passed away when she was turned 60, and I was getting ready to take her. And I had a news agent in Brisbane at the time. Anyhow, she rang me one early one Friday morning, you know, busy and then I just said look she said she was crook so I'd race straight home but it took me 13 minutes to get from the city out to where we lived and um yeah she was gone so oh I just want to go there for her yeah that's really lovely and I, I guess it'll be good to have a bit more time to be able to do these kind of things that mean a lot to you yeah and I'd like to go to Brisbane and have a a um reunion with all the girls that worked for me and the news agent there, even though it was 41 years ago. <laughs> They'll all say, gee, Jude, you haven't changed a bit. What will you say yeah. to them? Like bloody hell. <laughs> Put your glasses on and have another look. <laughs> oh, dear. If you've been to Charleville, you would have met rude Jude, Judy Aiken, who sold a shop after 41 years in the business. She says in her retirement she plans to spend time with the family and, of course, fishing the mighty Warrigo River. The new owners of the shop say the naughty corner will not only stay, it will even get bigger. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.